Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the intensifying war between Israel and Hamas as Israel cuts off fuel, water and food supplies to the Gaza Strip and assess the possibility of another front opening in the north as clashes with Hezbollah escalate. Joining us is Asha Kaufman, Director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a Professor of History and Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace, where he headed its Middle East unit. His latest book is Contested Frontiers, Cartography, Sovereignty and Conflict at the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Tri-Border Region. Then, with the House reconvening on Tuesday to elect another speaker, we will speak with a former Republican congressman who later worked on the January 6th investigation. Joining us is Denver Riggleman, who supported advanced intelligence analysis and technical development programs during his over two decades as an intelligence officer, NSA advisor, federal contractor, research and development technology lead, and CEO of support companies for the Department of Defense. A veteran of the global war on terror with multiple worldwide operations, he served in the United States Air Force for nine active duty years and is a former Republican member of the House of Representatives representing Virginia's 5th Congressional District and the former senior technical advisor for the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. He is the co-author of The Breach, the untold story of the investigation into January 6th. Then finally, we'll speak with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is a former managing director of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics, and we will discuss an article at the New York Times by David Brooks, which argues the Democrats should get behind Joe Biden and that it's the Democratic Party as a whole that is ailing. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Asha Kaufman, who is Director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a Professor of History and Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace, where he headed its Middle East unit. He's the author of Reviving Phoenicia, The Search for Identity in Lebanon, and his latest book is Contested Frontiers, Cartography, Sovereignty and Conflict at the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Tri-Border Region. Welcome to Background Briefing, Usher Kaufman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Asher. In terms of uh, of Lebanon, which you've studied, and particularly its border with Israel, there is some activity on that border 
uh, Israeli helicopter gunships have been firing into Lebanon. Are you concerned or do you detect any possibility of another front opening in the north now that Israel is essentially, uh, after declaring war on Hamas in Gaza, they've now vowed to completely besiege Gaza, cutting off fuel, electricity, food, etc. So could a second front open with Hezbollah in the north? I mean, it is certainly a possible uh, scenario. There are now thousands of Israeli troops uh, amassing at uh, the border, and uh, there have already been a few incidents uh, uh, along the the border, including one uh, literally an hour ago, where Islamic Jihad uh, uh, cell uh, infiltrated the border and was killed by Israeli army. Israel responded also by uh, targeting uh, Hezbollah, a watchtower. So the possibility of a flare-up there, an actual all-out war, is uh, is really is in in the air. And uh, on the Hezbollah side, I mean Hassan Nasrallah has already said that uh, his guns uh, are dedicated, are committed to support uh, the Palestinian Hamas if needed. So we are at a situation where we might be heading into a regional uh, war. And given Iran's role in supporting both Hamas and Hezbollah, is there a possibility that Israel could strike back against Iran? I think the possibility is there. You know, the plans, I'm sure, of the uh, Israeli Air Force are also there about uh, such a scenario. There is a... I'm, uh, you know, there are American forces, a Navy that is getting close to Israeli borders to demonstrate uh, support uh, for Israel. Possibly they're also sending a signal that uh, they might support Israel uh, if there is some confrontation with uh, Iran or that uh, as a warning that uh, Israel should not deal with uh, Iran uh, directly, uh, but only with its proxy, Hezbollah, if we get to that uh, situation. It's really hard to tell. There are many players uh, now and uh, uh, many players at the arena, and it's uh, as volatile as uh, as it could get. Well, given that you're director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, this is not exactly a time for peace studies, is it, Tasha? No, I think peace studies can offer you know, alternatives. Peace studies can give us... A, uh, the context of how we got uh, into here and uh, what are the constructive uh, steps that should be taken in order to uh, move uh, into a better and less violent uh, future. Uh, so right now there is a, a crisis that uh, that requires uh, intense uh, diplomacy and uh, intense negotiations in order to stop it as much as possible although that the parties now do not seem to be ready for that. But uh, you know, the field where I come from, the, the institute that I direct, uh, addresses these uh, issues. And we, there will be a moment where negotiations will have to be taken to take place between Israel and uh, Hamas. Uh, and if we want to think about uh, the future of uh, Israel and Palestine, then uh, we have to think about uh, peace and justice for all people living uh, in this small uh, territory. I mean, we are here because, at least in large part, we are in this situation because uh, 
Palestinians uh, claims for self-determination, Palestinians' uh, desire for self-determination have not been uh, realized, and uh, there has not been any path for constructive negotiations between the two parties. And Israel has avoided the Palestinian uh, uh, front for a good number of years now, you know, through this uh, false belief that uh, if you sign peace agreements with the uh, neighboring countries, such as uh, the United Arab Republic, United Arab Emirates, or even Saudi Arabia, then somehow you could uh, push the Palestinian uh, problem under the rug. But uh, we have been proven wrong time and again with that uh, perception, and now it has blown up uh, in Israel's uh, face, unfortunately. Well, I, what I was meaning, Asher, is that at this time, there's no possibility of peace talks because Israel is determined to punish Hamas and, in fact, right. even trying to er eradicate its military wing. They've apparently told the civilians in, in this most crowded place on the planet to get out of the way. Where can right. Palestinian uh, civilians in the Gaza Strip, where can they go? I mean, is there... I mean, they yeah, I mean they have nowhere they have nowhere to go to. I mean, uh, my my guess is that uh, we will see a sharp increase in uh, Palestinian casualties. It is already happening. Palestinian civilians have nowhere uh, to go to, and Israeli casualties will also increase if indeed uh, the IDF uh, goes into uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, Israeli casualties, soldiers' uh, casualties will increase uh, dramatically. And at the end of the day, you know, we will go back to square one, where you have about two million Palestinians living in uh, the Gaza Strip, and they need some, you know, some prospects for a different future. And uh, clearly, this is not on the table right now. What is on the table from uh, the perspective of Israel is revenge. And the conversation, the call for revenge inside Israeli society is really intense. It's coming almost, almost from all uh, sectors of the society. Uh, Netanyahu needs to repair his own damaged reputation as a failed uh, leader. And he sees that as an opportunity uh, for himself uh, personally. So I don't see any possibility for immediate uh, conversation, any, any, any you know, negotiations, diplomatic negotiations. There might be something now that may come up because, you know, Hamas also abducted uh, small kids, babies, and uh, some young uh, men and women and elderly. And there might be a possibility for, uh, you know, a negotiated agreement of releasing them. And then Israel might release uh, women and uh, uh, minors in, her, in its uh, prisons, Palestinian uh, prisoners. I do not know even even if this is a possibility, but uh, the conversation, you know, what you read now in the news that uh, this has been floated as a first step towards uh, some dialogue between the two parties. Well, I imagine though the mood in Israel is pretty bitter. I mean, the hideous nature of this Hamas attack, and it, as we're speaking on Monday, Asha. They still haven't really uh, rounded up all of the Hamas fighters who are roaming around shooting people at random. Yeah. Uh, and, and the attack on the rock uh, concert where 262 Israelis were killed, that really is hideous to even think about. Right. And uh, so 
I can't imagine that anybody much in Israel is thinking about peace and negotiation at this moment. They really are furious. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the general mood in Israel is uh, revenge, really revenge. But, uh, you know, Israeli decision makers will have to take into account that there are dozens of uh, prisoners now inside uh, of, uh, you know, hostages inside uh, the Gaza Strip. And some of them are babies. This, to be honest, is beyond me. Why would uh, Hamas uh, militiamen take babies as uh, small kids, as hostages? I mean, it tarnishes their uh, image uh, in really unbearably. Well, they didn't have much of an image to begin with, um, but they do live in a cage, and they've been caged in there yeah. for so t- long. So it's yeah. not yeah, yeah. entirely yeah. surprising that they would lash out. Yeah. For sure. Well, in the past, there have been negotiations, in spite of the fact that Hamas is a, essentially a religious sort of fanatical right. organization. They've been pragmatic in terms of negotiating earlier settlements right. and, and trade-offs and even hostage negotiations. So when do you think, I mean, at the moment, there'll be a lot of military activity and the pounding of Gaza will continue probably, for, I don't know for how long, but then at some point they're going to have to negotiate. And and even the fact that they've got over 100 hostages in this narrow strip, you would wonder whether or not, given the the fury of this aerial assault and the bombing campaign and then, you know, even the hostages' lives may be endangered. Yes, I mean, Hamas has already declared that for... Uh, hostages uh, died by Israel's uh, bombs. This could be, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, tactics to uh, psychological uh, warfare against Israel. I do not know. But, uh, of course, the the hostages' uh, own safety and life is uh, at stake uh, here. Israel's uh, Minister of Finance, uh, Smotrich, who is, uh, you know, he belongs to a far-right religious messianic Come, come, fascist uh, party, but a senior member of uh, the government has already said that Smotrich said that uh, these hostages will just be, you know, a price we will need to pay when we wipe out uh, Gaza. So we should not act in Gaza, uh, you know, carefully, uh, so as not to harm these hostages. That is what he said. Uh, uh, yesterday, I do not know if this would be the government uh, policy, but uh, this is, you know, another issue that the government would need to consider: the extent of uh, uh, operating carefully so as uh, not to harm the hostages. But that's the problem, isn't it? You've got people like Smotrich and the settler movement and Ben Gavir and Netanyahu, who's gotten into bed with them because they're the ones protecting him from. The corruption charges facing him, and and, and yes. in order to protect himself, he's trying to basically neutralize the Supreme Court, right? And and stack it with his cronies. So you've got religious nationalist fanatics on the Israeli side, and you've got religious fanatics on the Hamas side. So you know, there's a sort of they speak what, the same language. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, they speak the same language. You know, you can do an exercise, an intellectual exercise, and read the texts produced by Hamas versus texts produced by Gush Emunim. And if you remove uh, identifying features, uh, 
you would be you may not find too many difficulties about uh, the totality of uh, uh, the claim for ownership of uh, the land and the lack of legitimacy of uh, the other side and the religious language, of course, that is so central to their uh, ideology, political behavior. So Hamas and uh, certain circles within the settler movement uh, speak a very similar language, but from uh, two different uh, religious uh, traditions so yeah. is, what is the chance though of any entities on the palestinian side emerging that you could negotiate with because clearly the palestinian authority under the aging leadership is completely useless i mean it's so corrupt right. and and feebled and we know about hamas being I mean in arabic it means zeal I mean, they're just absolutely, you know, God is great, God is great, all that nonsense. So is there anything that you can start negotiating with? Because this is obviously a desperate attempt on the part of the Palestinians to show the world that they can't be ignored, which is, of course, the cynical nature of the Abram Accords uh, right. to bring Israel and Saudi Arabia together at the expense of the Palestinians as though they don't matter anymore. And even on our side, people like Jake Sullivan were just recently saying, isn't it great that we don't have to worry about the Middle East anymore? We're going to have peace. <laughs> well, what the right. hell were they thinking? I mean, obviously the Palestinians are not going to go away and they're not going to just slink off uh, like yeah, a yeah. wounded I mean, animal. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the epicenter of... You know, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and you cannot, uh, if you do not uh, address it, you will not be able to address the broader tension between Arabs and Jews in uh, in the region, uh, for sure. And uh, it is true that Palestinians suffer from a leadership crisis. The Palestinian Authority is dysfunctional, completely corrupt. Mahmoud Abbas uh, will go away soon, you know, biology with do its, uh, <laughs> its thing. He's more than 85 years old. Uh, and there is no credible leadership uh, right now. What you do have in the West Bank is uh, local uh, gangs, organizations that assume control of uh, urban areas such as in uh, Jenin, also because the PA is uh, unable to address uh, internal security issues. And you have Hamas, which poses uh, another challenge, both internally for Palestinians, but also externally vis-a-vis -vis Israel and, uh, and uh, you know, the international uh, community. You know, Smotrich was the one that actually said that we love Hamas because Hamas uh, gives Israel uh, an easy way out because we cannot negotiate with them. So Hamas is actually good for, uh, for Israel, for somebody like uh, Smotrich. But if you think of uh, the well-being of Israel in a broader, in broader terms, in broader context, then uh, you do need credible Palestinian leadership uh, with whom eventually you will need to engage in diplomacy and uh, reach some, some uh, you know, decrease in the violence. I'm not even speaking about a peace agreement. Right. Well, here in the United States, we're not exactly have our act together, do we? We don't even have a functioning House of Representatives. Right. You've got this one crazy Republican 
Tommy Tuberville is considered right. the stupidest person in the Congress, holding up <laughs> the U.S. military. So, yeah. as I say, we're not, we don't have our act together either, let alone the Palestinians. So just in closing, what are you hearing from your family and relatives and friends in Israel? I mean, you know, most of my contacts are on the Israeli side. Most of my family and friends are either in the Tel Aviv or the Jerusalem area. And these areas have been targeted by uh, rockets, missiles, but all in all, they have been, you know, safe. Uh, there is a general mood of uh, anxiety, depression all over the country. I have uh, friends uh, with families uh, in the area around uh, Gaza, and there the situation is extremely, extremely dire. I mean, what is coming out of there is uh, is no less than uh, hell. I mean, whole communities were wiped out. Uh, it's 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 as devastating as it as it can get. And uh, images from that part of the country are really, really harrowing. The situation is extremely bleak. The country is in a sense of uh, a real, real severe crisis. I would even say an existential uh, crisis, not only vis-a-vis Hamas and Hezbollah, but there is also a sense of internal uh, internal challenges that... uh, are a product of uh, all these years of Netanyahu's uh, uh, leadership. You know, divisions that he has uh, sowed and uh, cultivated all these years are now all up and uh, only adding to the level of internal Israeli anxiety. Well, Asha Kaplan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Asha Kaufman, who's the director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a professor of history and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. Prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace, where he headed its Middle East unit. And his latest book is Contested Frontiers, Cartography, Sovereignty, and Conflict at the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Tri-Border Region. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing the election of a new Speaker of the House with a former Republican congressman who later worked on the January 6th investigation. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently Discredited and abandoned everywhere is war. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Denver Riggleman, who supported advanced intelligence analysis and technical development programs during his over two decades as an intelligence officer, NSA advisor, federal contractor, research and development technology lead, and CEO of support companies for the Department of Defense. A veteran of the global war on terror and multiple worldwide operations, he served in the United States Air Force for nine active duty years and is a former Republican member of the House of Representatives representing Virginia's 5th Congressional District and a former senior technical advisor for the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. He's the co-author of The Breach, the untold story of the investigation into January 6th. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Denver Riggleman. Great to be here, and thank you. Well, thanks for joining us at Denver, and the House reconvenes uh, on Tuesday to elect another speaker. It may take some time, and the competition is between Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. Already, the former co-chair of the January 6th investigation, Liz Cheney, has gone public warning that a vote for Jim Jordan as speaker would be a catastrophe for the United States Constitution. Since you worked with Liz Cheney on the January 6th investigation, Denver, is Jim Jordan perhaps, if not the leading insurrectionist in the House, at least one of them? Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't follow him into a bathroom, Ian, you know. And I think when you're talking about being somebody who was behind January 6th, when you're looking at the body of individuals that could be the speaker, uh, the majority leader, and the whip, you're talking about three individuals that could have voted to object to the electors. And I think what people forget, Ian, is that he sent a text on January 5th, recopy-pasted an insanely crazy article from Joseph Schmitz. He used to be a DOD, Department of Defense Inspector General, and you know, I just find it amazing that that hasn't come out more than in the text messages to Mark Meadows, Jordan was really um, parroting some of the craziest people and craziest conspiracy theories. And I think that's why it's so damaging and why Liz, like me, are so worried is because we saw the data and the evidence based on the congressional representatives and those like Jim uh, that were really behind the push to overturn the election on January 6th. And he had, a, what, an 18-minute phone call with uh, Trump on January the 2nd and several phone calls on January the 6th, did he not? Well, you know, I got to see those phone logs, Ian, you know, as a senior technical advisor. And, you know, to see that, that Jordan was so heavily involved, even with the communications during that day. And, you know, again, you know, I don't like to, as an intelligence officer, a former intelligence officer, and as a tech advisor to the January 6th and, you know, the senior tech advisor to the January 6th committee. I don't like to jump to conclusions, but there's so much smoke uh, that the fire has to be coming from the center of that conflagration. And we talk about Jim Jordan, who he actually talks to, who he coordinates with, and who he's in communication with that day. It looks like he was very well aware of what was going on uh, in terms of the alternate electors and overturning the election that day. Well, but he was right out of the gate on Stop to Steal. Just two days after the election results came in, he was out campaigning for Stop to Steal. So, yeah, uh, it's, he was he was you know he was queuing on when it was cool, <laughs> right? And you know, and I think that's that's what people need to know about Jim Jordan is that whether he's a cynic or he's that credulous uh, and that stupid, I mean, all of those uh, really are disqualifying. And I think, again, that's why when you're looking at what happens in 2024, you have to be aware that, you know, leopard, you know, you could say all those things, right? And like lepers don't change their spots and things like that. But what I like to tell people is this past performance is indicative of future performance. Jim Jordan's not going to change his stripes or his spots when January or when 2024 rolls around for the election. So I think, again, going back to, you know, the beginning here and the question about Liz, there's actually there's such apprehension about people that are like that leading our country in any capacity that people that are facts-based need to stand up and say enough is enough at some point. So given that Steve Scalise is a formidable fundraiser, 
And that's usually what makes you popular. And you served in as a Republican in the House. So, Denver, how are you going to handicap the, the, the next few days? Because it seems to me that back in 2020, uh, Jim Jordan supported primary opponents for 12 sitting members of Congress on the Republican side. That Those 12 would certainly be dead against him. Depending on what type of power sharing agreement they have, you know what happens is there's so many behind the door meetings about the promises for committee assignments and things like that after the vote. But you said something that was very profound at the beginning. It, it, it is about the money. And Scalise is formidable. You also remember Scalise is from a massive energy producing district in Louisiana. He's very close to all those individuals, right? When you're talking about any type of refineries or oil production, Scalise has the in there based on where he's based out of, out of Louisiana. Jordan doesn't have any of that. Jordan's a Freedom Caucus rabble rouser um, that's really trying to appeal to the, the Christian nationalist right, to conspiracy theorists and things of that nature. He talks about limited government, but he's really about government that only aligns with his belief systems. So that's going to be difficult. The issue is the base is not a Scalise base right now. So you have this bizarre thing that's happening. You have Scalise, who's a more formidable fundraiser, who should be sort of the heir apparent to McCarthy. But you have Jordan sort of divining or sort of mining the ignorant um, to get where he needs to be and sort of this rabble rouser when it talks about Biden, Hunter Biden, and things like that. So I would have thought that Scalise would have the inside track right off the bat. But Ian, I really do believe that when it comes down to it, I think – Scalise still is the favorite to me, but Jordan has a lot more juice than people know about based on the on the base and based on Trump's support. So let's talk about the Christian right base that is more likely to vote for support to Jim Jordan than Scalise amongst those in the House. You, of course, lost your House seat because you officiated over a gay wedding, which I guess was a double whammy for the Christo-fascists in as much as it was an interracial gay wedding. So <laughs> It certainly was. It was an interracial gay wedding. I, I, I figured if I was going to do it, Ian, I might as well go all the way, buddy. You know, that's so I, I went ahead and did that. So let's talk about Christian nationalism and its threat to American democracy. Of course, you've got Senator Ted Cruz's father out there who's a dominionist. Uh, I just saw a clip of him the other day saying how dire the situation is here in America because the wicked are going to vote for the wickedness. And the wicked, of course, being anybody that but the MAGA voters. So how much do you see this as a clear and present danger? Oh, you know, uh, I think right now when you're talking about those who say it's my way or the highway on the evangelical right, I think it's one of the scariest things we've faced in some time. You know, you go all the way back, you know, to, gosh, the America first before World War II, you know, those awful times with, you know, Nazi sympathizers. When you are looking at the individuals today, it's all about, hey, my God is telling me that Donald Trump is ordained to be president. Um so the means justify the ends regardless of what those means are. So I think when you look at the Christian right and all these and – I, and I hope that you know, your listeners need to, to be tuned into some, some acronyms, if, if I may. Um, the, yeah, the New Apostolic Reformation or the NAR, uh, Unified in Purpose, the UIP. They should be tracking the Reawakened Tour events by Mike Flynn. And they should be looking back at reporting on the Mark Meadows text, You know, the people like Jenny Thomas and things like that. And looking at what's happening within how the upper echelons of the GOP were communicating, those communications were all 
really based on this good against evil apocalyptic belief that if it's a Democrat, an independent, or a rhino that somehow gets elected, right, that the devil himself is going to appear through a satanic portal over the White House is what Roger Stone was talking about. Those are insane, crazy things, but you have a massive portion of the base who believes in this apocalyptic battle, which was really represented by QAnon on January 6th, and it's actually increased in its fervor since then. So, you know, and Ian, you know, I wrote a book about it, The Breach, you know, about January 6th. And in that book, I really go over how I was raised in my evangelical settings and how I thought and how that translates to the data that we're seeing today and what happened on January 6th and what's happening now with this huge push towards Christian nationalism. And before anybody says, oh, Denver, you can't define it like that, they're self-defining that like Ian, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene says, of course, I'm a Christian nationalist. And I think that self-definition or self-identification or, or putting those definitions on themselves should really concern Americans in that that really isn't the freedom of thought and the separation of church and state we thought we were getting as Americans. Well, the guy that replaced you, Bob Good, he spoke up on the, on the invitation of Matt Gates for when they uh, booted out McCarthy just the other day. And he comes from, uh, didn't he work for Jerry Falwell Jr., the guy that he did, uh, who had a menage a trois with his wife and the pool boy? Yeah, it's, um, you know what's odd about this, Ian, if you wanted me to, to have some fun with this, you know, so Liberty, yet's where Bob Good is from. Jerry Falwell Jr. actually endorsed me during the election. And how odd was that? I thought there was no way I would get an endorsement from anybody at Liberty. But come to think of it, maybe Jerry wasn't quite aligned with the other people at Liberty University when you talk <laughs> about his his pool boy escapades. Um, but when you talk about Bob Good, I mean, not just a Christian nationalist, but a COVID denier, a QAnon believer, somebody who believes that, you know, there's no birth control. You shouldn't even have birth control. Think about what I just said there, Ian. And what I, what I said about Bob Good, he's a guy who believes that birth control starts at erection, you know, and uh, or that uh, life begins at erection. And I think that I think that's a that's a bad that's a bad person to have uh, as a congressional representative for a district. And I think that's something, again, Bob Good is such a performative. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say asshat. That would be inappropriate. But I think he's a he's a performative politician that's really ignorant about how things work. But again, the base reacts to that type of apocalyptic vision. And Bob has tapped into that with the base here in Virginia's 5th District. So in 2020, Steve Scalise voted to remove Confederate statues from the U.S. Capitol. You were suggesting earlier, Denver, that without putting words in your mouth, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to think that Jim Jordan's maybe got the inside track. Scalise wouldn't win too many friends with these Christian nationalists, would he, for uh, removing the Confederate statues? No, I mean, Steve doing that, I mean, my goodness, right? I mean, how dare you? And I'm being very sarcastic, by the way, and for your listeners. <laughs> you know, um, I would vote to remove Confederate statues, and I'm born and raised in Virginia. Um, so, you know, I, my, the high school I went to, you know, I was a Stonewall Jackson Raider. I was a graduate of Stonewall Jackson High School, you know, in 1988. So, it's pretty amazing to me, you know, that when you look back in hindsight, what was happening in the 80s and what's happening today. But Scalise is going to have a really tough time with those votes. And that's all going to come out in the wash. And if you did, don't think that Republican activists know about Scalise's voting record, you have another thing coming. They're well aware you know, that he might have actually, you know, I guess, been an apostate to the cause a few times. And I think that could really hurt him. Well, this is an alarming, and uh, the country's in a, an alarming state, and you've got the House possibly going to elect 
an insurrectionist, uh, Jim Jordan, and you've got the De- the Republican Party controlled by the leader of the insurrection, Donald Trump. So these are troubling times, just in closing. They certainly are. And I think what people need to look at, especially when you're looking at social media, or you're looking at alternative media, or you're looking at sourcing, is what people are actually saying. And what you're seeing, the power of the right right now is that the base is with them. It's really not the leadership now powering the base. The base is now powering the leadership and that sentiment based on polling and fundraising. I don't see this ending anytime soon. I think 2024, either it's going to be a lot closer than people think, uh, you know, with a, a Democrat win in the White House, or Trump might pull it out. And I think we have to be very aware that this is a real threat to our country. And I hope that hope people's heads are out of the sand. That's all I can say. Well, Dan Riggleman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. It was, a, it was an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you, Denver. And again, I've been speaking with Denver Riggleman, who supported advanced intelligence analysis and technical development programs during his over two decades as an intelligence officer, NSA advisor, federal contractor, research and development technology lead, and CEO of support companies for the Department of Defense. A veteran of the global war on terror and multiple worldwide operations, he served in the United States Air Force for nine active duty years and is a former Republican member of the House of Representatives representing Virginia's 5th Congressional District and the former senior technical advisor to the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol and the co-author of The Breach, the untold story of the investigation into January 6th. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing an article by David Brooks in the New York Times, which argues the Democrats should get behind Joe Biden and that it's the Democratic Party as a whole that is ailing. Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up We broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Parker. Good to be with you, Ian, as always. Well, thanks for joining us, Richard. And uh, I've been getting a lot of of email from friends who are distributing an article in Sunday's New York Times by David Brooks. Can we talk about Joe Biden? So it's obviously mm-hmm. getting a lot of attention. And I wanted to discuss it with you because it basically argues uh, that the Democrats should get behind Joe Biden and, in effect, it is the Democratic Party that's ailing, not Joe Biden. What did you make of the article? Well, look, I mean, I think that I agree with large parts of it, which is I think that at this point, the Democratic Party has to get behind Joe Biden. I don't see in the landscape of potential other candidates who exactly uh, offers, you know, better results. I also think that, uh, you know, Brooks's article overlooks some fundamentals about what's going on 
in American society and stays a little bit too focused on the personality of Joe Biden and the personality of Donald Trump, which is a habit that mainstream media and media in general have of personalizing politics. And my own tendency is to want to be able to move back and forth between the personal and sort of the larger issue context. So we can talk about that. One of the points that David Brooks makes in his article at the New York Times on Sunday is that Democrats may be anxious about the old guy running, but that doesn't mean they'd automatically warm to someone trying to take him down. Um, and if you look back, of course, at what happened uh, with Jimmy Carter when he was challenged by Edward Kennedy in the primaries, that didn't do Carter any good, of course, either. So it seems to me that that's something that, that people that are thrashing around for an alternative maybe haven't thought about. Well, that's right. And I mean, again, so my my way of trying to think about this is not to think immediately of the personality, but to think of the presidency as the person elected by coalitions of voters that have reasonably coherent, sometimes uh, uh, incoherent, but reasonably coherent issues uh, in front of them and values in front of them. And bringing those coalitions together is what creates a successful presidency uh, and and even just a successful nomination for the presidency. You have to be able to assemble and stabilize those coalitions long enough to win the nomination, let alone then win uh, the presidency. So what I do when I think about the coalitions is think that, you know, this is a large country, 300 million people, and uh, it goes through cycles of interest in uh, elite politics and disinterest in elite politics. We've had uh, dramatic shifts in terms of the number of people willing to vote uh, in the last four elections that wasn't even predictable or even imaginable uh, 30 years ago. So one thing is that there's a rising interest in politics and uh, participating at least at the uh, level of voting in November of quadrennial elections. That's really important to take account of. The second is that we're in a period of what I call the fourth great migration into the United States with something like one out of four Americans, either foreign born or the child of someone who was foreign born. And when we've had these migratory waves in the past, they've deeply influenced the political outcomes because they altered the existing coalitions that had made up the previous uh, politics of the respective parties. And I think that's what we're going through right now, which is on the one hand, the Democratic Party is reconfiguring itself to absorb a much more uh, polyvocal, poly multicultural uh, constituency and trying to activate that multicultural constituency to elect Democrats, including Joe Biden, but not exclusively Joe Biden. The Republican Party made a bet in the 1960s that it could mobilize a large block of once upon a time Democratic white voters in the South, which it has done very successfully and which served as a core coalition uh, base for the long Reagan cycle. But that core is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as a percentage of voters. And that's the dilemma that they're facing, which is that they need to turn out a core that is getting smaller and activate it to a higher level of voter participation to offset what is happening with the shift going on toward the Democratic Party as these newer voters come into the uh, into the stream. Well, the article points out 
that in June of 2019, in the Democratic primary debate, nine out of ten on the stage supported decriminalizing border crossings, with Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand even going further than their colleagues, calling for the dismantling of immigration and customs enforcement. Now we're seeing Joe Biden having to reverse himself and build a part of the wall down on the southern border. And obviously the Democratic Party is a coalition of of interest groups and identity politics. But one of the curious ironies is that support for immigrants, and of course we've got vast numbers now from Cuba and, and Venezuela, the Latino voters in this country aren't entirely behind open immigration or whatever the Republicans describe the Democratic position. What do you make of that? I make two things of it. One is there, there's no history of any country in the world being able to operate an open border policy that allows people from outside the country to enter and claim citizenship. Nowhere. I'm just there, no history of it as being feasible. These things run in cycles where there's a willingness to absorb immigrants and then uh, an increasing resistance to uh, that immigration. And we're right now, I think, at a tipping point where increasingly the Democrats are going to come under pressure to operate a stiffer uh, immigration border wall control. That doesn't mean that they're anti-immigrant or that we're going to shut down immigration. But I think that there is a growing sense that among potential Democratic voters, even if it's a significant minority, it's a swing minority and um, that Biden is responding to it. Uh, So there's that, which is You know, there's no history of anyone successfully running a permanent open border policy. And these things run in cycles. And we've had a long run since the 1960s and the passage of the Hart-Seller Act. And so I'm I'm not objectively surprised. I'm horrified by the human consequences of denying many of these people entry, given the world from which they're coming and the role that America has played in creating some of the devastation in that world. But that's a that's a humanitarian and moral compassion issue, and that's not the same thing as electoral politics. The, the second thing I'd say is that I don't understand why uh, people are surprised that the complex uh, Spanish-speaking, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx community uh, is uh, divided on this issue. I grew up in Southern California and in a period in mid-20th century America where we uh, talked, all of us, uh, alike talked about being Mexican-American or being Guatemalan-American or being uh, Cuban-American or whatever, the term Hispanic or Latino had not emerged because people attached themselves to specific identities and the social construction of the idea that because people share a linguistic cultural background uh, uh, as being the definer of loyalties is, 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 is recent and, and, and I don't think is accepted particularly well within that complex community. I mean, you've seen the same polls that I have, which is asked about this term Latin X, which is very popular in university communities and on certain uh, media outlets. Vast majority of people who would identify, who would be identified as such claim not to even know the term, uh, let alone uh, express any interest in it. So we've got a social construct of an identity that is a recent social construct that is not an identity that is actually affirmed by the majority of people we are trying to fit into that category. So I'm not surprised by that. 
And it's also the case that, look, it's a complex community in class terms. There are small business people. There are independent contractors. There are wealthy business people. There are uh, all sorts of classes and class identities represented within that large uh, uh, Spanish-speaking uh, community or one Spanish-speaking community. And so, again, I think that if what we're talking about is the objective analysis that political analysis requires, uh, I don't understand what, why it's taken so long for the Democrats to recognize this fact. Again, there are lots of issues about uh, denial of visibility, of equality of rights, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the same as uh, the analysis politically. But in terms of the problem itself, which David Brooks points out, just quoting again from his article, Biden's approval ratings are stubbornly low. In a recent ABC poll, only 30% of voters approved of his handling of the economy and only 23% approved of his handling of immigration at the southern border. Roughly three-quarters of American voters say that Biden at 80 is too old to seek a second term. They have been, mm-hmm. There have been a string of polls showing that large majorities of his own party don't want him to run again. And in one survey mm-hmm. from 2022, an astounding 94% of Democrats under 30 said they wanted a different nominee. So even though the article argues that the problem is not Biden, it's the Democratic Party, how does he turn those figures around? couple things. One is uh, neither Biden nor Trump enjoys majority approval uh, from the American voters. Um, And what you want to think about is in a face to face showdown between Trump and uh, uh, Biden, what it is that these uh, Democrats who are hesitant about Biden, who say they don't approve of Biden or Americans in general who say they don't approve of the Biden administration will do when the choice is Biden versus Trump. Um, you know, America won the Second World War by allying itself with the Soviet Union, where the majority of Americans from Franklin Roosevelt on down approving of the Soviet Union. No, But when given a choice between allowing Hitler to run rampant over Europe and supporting the Soviet dictator, we chose to support the Soviet dictator in order to accomplish a particular end. Politics is a a story about settling uh, in the final instance for what is the better of the deals available uh, that one can get. Uh, And so I, I at this stage, more than a year away from the November election, I'm just not paying attention to these approval ratings. The second is there's a trend line to approval ratings of uh, public leaders of all kinds, whether it's of churches, banks, universities, the media, uh, politics, whatever. And that is a trend line that has been going down since the middle of the 20th century. In the mid-1960s, 75 percent of Americans answered yes when uh, asked the question, do you think that the government will do the right thing all or most of the time? Uh, By the late 1970s, that was down to 25%, from 75% to 25%. That enormous break has never recovered. Uh, uh, In other words, it's never gone back up. There have been times when, for example, in the Reagan years, the Republicans discovered, well, they actually did like government a little bit more because their government was in office. Uh, When Obama was in office, the Democrats discovered they liked government a little bit better. We're in a period in the evolution of American capitalist democracy 
where the ability to say that this is a country in which the vast majority somehow are naively uh, enthusiastic about the governance system, either of the government or the governance system of the corporations in which most of us pass our uh, working lives, uh, is, is nonsense. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. So we're working in a state of perpetual discontent. And I think what we have to do in uh, uh, trying to figure out what this means for who will be elected in November 24 is to better understand that overall general level of deteriorated confidence and favor toward public leadership as it is. And then secondly, that you've got two candidates, neither of whom actually enjoys a majority and about which finally voters are going to make a decision when they go into that voting booth between those two characters. And I think that at the moment, I'm not particularly worried about Biden's numbers in in that case, as long as it's Trump whom he's facing. So since you're an economist, uh, Richard, what do you make of the idea that Brooks says that age isn't Biden's key weakness, inflation is? Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, where you look for uh, discontent, and it's going to be discontent that will show up, I think, in non-voting rather than voting against um, I think that there are real worries. I was in shopping at our local supermarket star. A pound of butter costs six dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And gasoline is back up to three ninety. I know out there in California it's even higher. Um, six dollars. And yeah, well, so and and it, it people live with a, a, an experience of the economy that's highly particularized by their experience. And they know a lot about their economy, uh, which uh, national reporters and national pollsters uh, oftentimes miss. I remember a a British journalist friend of mine who covered the 92 campaign. And so was on the plane riding around with other journalists and uh, at one time Clinton and uh, another time other candidates. And the, the common uh, the common wisdom among the journalists was, oh, Americans, they don't understand the economy, blah, 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 blah. And what my British friend did was go into towns whenever they landed and begin to talk to people about the economy. They didn't know what the national inflation rate was. They didn't know what the national unemployment rate was. But if you wanted to know what the price of housing was in the local area, what a house had gone for two blocks away, what a comparable house cost to rent, what the price of milk or the price of bread or the price of butter was and which direction those prices were moving, what the cost of education or health care insurance was, they knew. Um, and uh, what I'm worried about is that there's a kind of a national delusion that focuses on the consumer price index or, you know, an, uh, a proxy equivalents that doesn't catch the granular experience of people when they walk into their supermarket or they write out checks or, you know, make credit card payments uh, at the end of the month. So just in the last minute, Brooke says that I have also come to fear and loathe Donald Trump. I cannot fathom what damage that increasingly deranged man might do to this country if given a second term. And what can the press do to stop falling into the trap? I mean, Trump was grandstanding at the New York trial in order to distract from what the contents of the trial were, which was damaging testimony against him supporting uh, the case that he's a massive fraudster. So again, you know, they just keep getting 
played by this guy. Right. So, you know, I, I think this is where calling out fellow journalists is really important, uh, because I think that peer pressure is relevant in this particular instance. Um, we're, you know, I think that people who aren't in journalism don't understand how cognizant journalists are of what their peers are saying about what the important issues of the day are or who's doing a good job of covering or who's doing a bad job of covering and why. And I think that this is one where it's going to require a kind of perpetual stop it, stop it, stop it uh, voice, yours and and that of others uh, around the country that just says enough of this. We're on to this game. Stop with the horse race. Stop with the on the one hand, on the other. Stop it. And the press is capable of doing this. They did that on issues of race in the wake of George Floyd. They've done it in the wake uh, in, in terms of the treatment of women in the wake of the Me Too movement. And I think that being able to say, look just at those two instances where the press has shown an ability to discipline itself at a level that was unimaginable five or 10 or 15 years ago. The question then is, why aren't you disciplining yourself around the coverage of these political races? Well, Richard Parker, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, good to talk with you as always. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's the former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.